Are you still jet-lagged, Monte? Very, very much. <laughs> I was thinking that I'm getting a little taste of what it was like for Amar Asiri when he was getting, his, his sleep was so bad. Yeah. He was only getting a few hours of sleep a night. So he's always kind of walking around looking like he just woke up and yeah. needed to go back to bed. So uh, I've been uh, working pretty off, pretty steady in the office. And I can see that I'm getting work done, but I can tell that I'm just I'm really slow, <laughs> and I'm kind of mistake prone. Uh, last night when I got in, I got I arrived at two a.m. <laughs> yeah, train was late, and uh, when I got to my kuti, there was a uh, porcupine chewing on my kuti. Oh my. My kutis, yeah, porcupines decided that my kuti is very tasty. And so it, it likes to come pretty much every night at around 1.30. And it just chews until the sun comes up, I think. <laughs> what does he chew? Uh, he chews on this siding. The siding is made out of uh, plywood. And I've been told that they like, there's some, like the binder that's in the plywood, they, they, they like it. So... Uh, this has been going on for years, uh, but usually it's like the, you know, the porcupine shows up, wakes me up at 1.30 in the morning, I go outside and I chase the porcupine, maybe you could bring me a cup. There is a cup here, Oh, okay. Yeah, but I don't really... So you would need hot water? No. Is this hot water here? Yeah. I think so. Okay. And that should be okay. Yeah. Richard and Robert. How did you guys get roped into being Ajinamaro super toxic and drivers on this trip? Are you, you're kind of like going around with them? That's how I bribed him into coming. Oh, yeah? <laughs> he said, I'll drive you and you won't have to do anything. I said, no, yeah. you know, if you can't, then we can go to Saru for a week. We can go to Temple. And so you're kind of you're, you're kind of shuttling him around from one place to another. We're doing triangles, triangle tour. Oh, very nice. So he said, "Great, I haven't been in Canada since 1994, and then it was BC, so I never went." Okay, so he hasn't really been to Ontario before. Well, I'm glad you brought him. Very kind of you. And how about um, how about Robert? What was what's his involvement? Or sorry, did I, did I get you guys? You're Richard, right? Okay, Robert. So you came along too. Are you part of this, like, uh, look after Ajahn Amaro on the triangle? Yes, I flew from Honolulu to Detroit. 
to join. Oh, really? Richard and <laughs> that's, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> it was quicker than swimming. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Hallelujah. Great. Pretty long flight, I reckon, huh? That's got to be like yes. a... Like a 12-hour, 16-hour flight? Uh, not quite. Yeah. I had to change planes in Houston, so that added yeah, an hour yeah. I, I remember flying to uh, Maui from San Francisco, and that was that, that alone is like an eight-hour flight. And that's, that's pretty mm-hmm. kind of obnoxious. Uh, my wife got a bargain flight, and the, uh, the, uh, we were seated in front of the bulkhead. And this isn't from the back of the seat to the bulkhead, was shorter than the length of my leg, so I couldn't actually couldn't actually sit with my legs forward. I had to sit sideways for like this for the entire for eight hours. For eight hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna do that again. <laughs> it's uh, one of the downsides of being tall. Small people don't have that problem. Hmm. So I just got back from Israel, where I traveled with my father and my sister and a group, a tour group of other people um, who are all interested in this particular tour to visit various Jewish and Christian holy sites um, for 10 days. And the impetus of the tour was my sister. She's... Um, uh, employed by a company, a, a nonprofit corporation in Phoenix, Arizona, called Jewish Voice Ministries International, JVMI. And JVMI is founded on the notion of what's called the Jewish Messianic Movement. And the, the, the charter of the Jewish Messianic Movement, or the thesis of it, is that. Christ actually was the Messiah, and the Jews missed out by not accepting him as such. So, so Jewish Voice Ministries International, the people who are there, and, and the founder of it, um, mostly they're Jewish. Uh, but they've all accepted Christ as the Messiah, which kind of technically makes them Christian. So I guess they're like Christian Jews, um, or Jewish followers of Christ. Uh, I don't think they, they necessarily extend that to include um, like a full endorsement of the entire New Testament, or and I don't know how far that goes, but certainly the notion of Christ as the Messiah. And uh, of course, historically, that's been the big division between the Jews and the Christians. And interestingly, uh, on this trip, it became sort of apparent to me that like the whole Holocaust and most of the problems that the Jews have had in the various places where they've been scattered around the world um, stems in part from the distinction between Jews and Christians around that acceptance of Christ as the Messiah. Uh, so it was quite an interesting trip because obviously you know, being raised in the West and having been raised as a, as a Catholic, uh, it was kind of in the back of my mind. Um, I didn't think I'd ever kind of get that close to that that very question. Of, you know, why are what's the difference between Jews and Christ, and what do Jews believe, what do Christians believe, and how uh, 
how do their their theologies, their soteriologies differ? Especially as a Buddhist monk. So anyways, my sister works for this company. Uh, she's a kind of a born-again Christian. Uh, she was raised Catholic like me, but the church wasn't doing it for her. She ended up becoming a born-again Christian. And uh, she's an HR professional. She's been working in HR for 30 years. And so GAVMI needed someone to run their HR department. And they ended up hiring her. And one of their employee benefits is they do a tour of the Holy Land every year for some employees and for their family and friends. So they had about 190 people on this tour. Wow. And my sister was one of the bus captains. So they have like they get like four buses and they put 45 people on each bus. And uh, she invited my father to come and my father said, well, I'll go, but only if Kamiko goes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got kind of like into, this, into this trip. Uh-huh. So it was very interesting. Uh-huh. But that's why I'm jet lagged. I just got back. Um, there... Uh, Israel, uh, Tel Aviv is seven hours ahead, time-wise. So right now it's, anyways, it's I'm well, I'm pretty screwed up, and I've <laughs> 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 been since I got back. Um, but I'm trying to stay awake like all day long, and I keep looking at sunlight so that my body will reset as quickly as possible. But I can tell I'm only like seventy percent, seventy percent available. But yeah, I'm here to to talk about anything you want to talk about, entertain any question. So theology is, is a kind of a forward in my mind. Uh, the difference between Christians and Jews and Christians, Jews and Buddhists. Uh, what's going on in Israel. Um, 3D printing, since we're working up for 3D printer all day. <laughs> and... Uh, well, anything you want to Dhamma? Dhamma is a great topic too. We could talk about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I got a, I got a non-deep question. But do you wear your Buddha robes? I oh. mean, do you wear your your robes? So yeah, monks are required when they when they're not in a monastery to keep both rope shoulders covered, and and we typically we use our robes to do that. Uh-huh. So we don't we don't we try not to appear in public in anything other than our full Buddhist. Okay. Monk garb. So, do you get do people take double takes? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Ajans. So uh, there's a there's a monk that uh, occasionally shows up in Israel. Shows up there every year to take care of his parents, but he's he's living in Thailand. His name is Ajahn Sukito. And uh, when they when he heard that it was coming, he's got a, a kind of a, a little support group there in in Tel Aviv. They invited me to come and give a Dhamma talk, and then Ajahn Sukito invited me and my father to go on a kind of a walking tour of Tel Aviv the following morning along with breakfast and the meal. So they were looking after us the very first day. We got there a day ahead of the, of the beginning of the tour. And uh, there's this, this, saying, this old saying, I don't know how old it is, but uh, Ajahn Pasano shared this with me. Uh, when we were, when I first got ordained as a seminara, 
He said, um, one man walking around in brown robes, a Buddhist monk, walking around in North America, uh, to, the, to the broader public, the interpretation will be, that is a crazy person. Avoid that person. That is a crazy person. Crazy. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so most people like, see a, a monk walking around, they've never seen one before, and what they see is a bald man wearing a bed sheet. <laughs> right? they, don't see it. They, don't, they don't necessarily see a monk. And uh, their instincts tell them to, to avoid that person. But if they see two men dressed that way, then they think, oh, there's something going on there. There's some kind of institution, there's something happening. It's not just two crazy people, because two crazy people would be dressed differently. Yeah. But since they're dressed the same, uh, there's something... So it's much more reassuring to have two monks than just one monk. And then if there's three, then there's like some kind of invasion happening. <laughs> so, so two monks are actually quite approachable. And so when we were in Tel Aviv, and uh, walking around Tel Aviv and just kind of random places in Tel Aviv, and people were coming up to us and just like going, "Hello, uh, oh, uh, what, 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 uh, you know, <laughs> well, what are you guys, you know, <laughs> or what's with the robe, or why are you dressed like that?" Or that was a question, just like sheer puzzlement, because in Israel, you know, there just aren't any Buddhist monks, and the religious world there is Arabs. Arabs are Islamic, uh, so Islam, Judaism, a little sprinkling of Christianity, and they're all kind of struggling with each other. There's this kind of dynamic of uh, the sons of Abraham uh, <laughs> uh, fighting over everything, basically. And so, the, like you know, everything else in the world, you know, monks and Hindu religion and all that other stuff is just like it's not part of the scene and so when a monk shows up it's just it's like a a vision that dropped out of heaven so yeah we get stopped in the street a lot there in airports San Francisco places like that now they just see a Buddhist monk it's just yeah it's just another Buddhist monk you know they don't really make a big deal out of it but in Israel it was a pretty big deal when I got with when I got put on the bus with a tour group and was separated from Ajahn Sukito, then people became more shy because now there's just a crazy person uh, that has to be like guarded against. <laughs> but I got my sister to announce that the person who's dressed in the brown bed sheet is that's uh, actually a Buddhist monk and it's actually her brother since she was the bus captain. And then all people started being friendly again. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> so, yes, it's quite interesting to see. What I can see is that Israelis are basically pretty friendly, open people, uh, interested in what's going on in the world. Obviously not all all Israelis, but um, certainly a lot of the, pretty much all the Israelis that walked up to me were Jews. When I was in in, in Arab quarters, uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. Whether it was me with Ajahn Sukito or me by myself, um, you know, zero Arab people asked, or uh, I guess um, Muslims, Muslims uh, approached me and said, you know, what, what are you? What's, what's, what's the story? So they, they were less curious, or less forward anyways, less, less willing to ask. And uh, all the, uh, mostly Americans, a few Canadians, on the buses of the tour, because it's Jewish Voice International has, I guess, some branch in BC, and uh, it's open to anybody who wants to come. So a lot of people are coming from all over North America, and once they got the word that okay, it's just a, you know a Canadian, a guy who lives in Canada who's a monk, related to one of the people on the buses, then they're all you know approaching me at the meal and approaching me on the buses and when we're walking around and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, asking you various questions. Mm-hmm. So the, the North Americans were very curious too, which is normal. I mean, whenever I go to teach at the local Catholic high schools, the kids there are very curious and quite willing to ask questions. So the Israelis seem like very much the same character. How did you manage to get the food every day? Um, well, um, the first couple of days, it was the group that was supporting Ajit Sukito. Of course, my father was with me, so we were sharing a hotel room. And uh, the hotel had a buffet breakfast. I would get the meal of the buffet breakfast. My father would make sure that it was properly offered. And... Um, then they would have, and sometimes the lunch would be early enough that I could treat that as a meal. And that was usually on the road, so my father would buy me something. Um, but sometimes it would be late, so we wouldn't actually have an opportunity to eat until one o'clock, in which case I'd just make one meal do the trick. And that's it. Pretty, yeah, monks are easy. Easy peasy. Always minute. And you were carrying your bowl? I travel with my bowl, so whenever monks, you know, ah. <laughs> good heavens, welcome. I heard that you've had some, some health difficulties. Yeah, no, I'm okay. I hope partly. You're looking better, huh? You're feeling better. Getting around. It's good to see you here. You know Maureen? No, I don't think we've met. What's your name? Maureen. Maureen. Nice to meet you. 
Okay. <laughs> are, are, you, are you working for Telica or? No, no, she's from the states, Wendelbert. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. Michigan. Oh, a friend of Richards. Okay, now we're kind of making all the connections. So actually, you're looking at the. Are you looking? Looking? Are you looking after Telica right now, or <laughs> traveling with her a little bit? Yeah. Temporarily. Not really. Mm-hmm. She won't I don't know which one. I, I joined it. Oh, nice. It, That's good. It always looks like you're helping Tilika by releasing it. I know Tilika's helping everybody. She's helping me get a, get a resident card right now. Exactly. She's, she's uh, extremely helpful. And uh, uh, Tilika uh, also kind of emphasized for me a lot Matarashiham. Um, uh, Mahatera uh, and Venerable uh, Nirnana Nanda. He yeah. passed away in the book. I know, I heard about that. It's unfortunate. But we still have his writings. Right. I, had this, I had this idea that maybe I'll get a chance to meet him, you know, because I knew he was getting old. Um, but, you know, just not my karma. <laughs> yeah. She met him last year. Did you meet him? Yes, when people said just before he passed away, but before that I had met him too. Mm. But uh, Olivia, you know Olivia? Oh, yes, I know. Olivia was anxious to go, so Olivia and I made the trip to Sri Lanka. Wow, did you do that last year? Yes, just before he passed away. Uh I was too sick to answer her question. So to drive mm-hmm. over, and he sent the response in writing. Wow. Yeah. But he was so sick. But willing to talk about Dhamma to the very end. <laughs> That's a proper monk. <laughs> yes. Well, so feel like I have a seat, you know, don't don't wear yourself out. So Maureen, have you been to this monastery before? Yes, I'm uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. In that case, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, I'm often like like I, like I've been doing that more. Frequently absent doing something else, you know. But so you were. We came just a couple weeks ago, and you were on your way to Israel. Yes, and I was just talking about that. Yeah. yeah so I just got back. Okay. And I'm still pretty jet lagged, but you know. I got back last night at 2 o'clock oh, in the morning. Oh, wow. Were you there when the whole... Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it was quite interesting being there for the uh, the Iranian-launched attack from Syria onto the Golan Heights, uh, military positions of the Israelis in the Golan Heights. That's kind of a disputed region because it's... Uh, it just is. Like, everything else has got history, right? Um, and then uh, uh, Israel's... Uh, strike back against the Iranians, taking out most of the Syrian anti-aircraft and uh, aircraft, or, uh, air defense uh, uh, equipment in, in one night. Very noisy. Wow. Uh, so woke up people in the, ho- in the hotel at 3 o'clock in the morning. Boom, 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 boom. Wow. And then uh, we were in Jerusalem the day that they were opening the embassy. And so there's a lot of you know, more security and lots more American flags wow. than would ordinarily be the case. Uh, but you know, the, the whole kind of tour, uh, tourist uh, scene and tour guides and tour buses and everything else just kind of went along just like totally normal and sort of worked around it. Like, so you didn't have to change your itinerary? No, a little bit. I mean, there was... 
We were going to visit uh, a site uh, in the Golan Heights, um, but we were turned away by the military because they were expecting an attack. They had like yeah, they had military checkpoints in every crossroad, and they had UN observer vans out there, and they were kind of anticipating something was going to happen. Uh, I think I remember reading a newspaper headline a couple, a few weeks before we left, that where it was claimed that the Syrians were going to strike Israel, uh, and, and this was kind of like an unexpected revelation. Uh, usually, military information like that doesn't become public right. prior to, uh, and maybe the, uh, we, the thinking at the time I think was that this. By disclosing it ahead of time, it would um, kind of prevent them from doing it. So somehow Israeli intelligence had picked up that this was their intent. And, uh, they thought they'd prevent it. It happened anyways, but they were obviously quite ready for it yeah. uh, when it happened. So uh, <clears throat> nothing, as far as I could tell from that from that air from that strike coming from um, this, the uh, Iranians. Uh, you know, did any meaningful damage to Israel. I don't think we heard that it was an Iranian slash Syrian strike on the Golan Heights. Then mm-hmm. what about the Gaza? Oh, then the, 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 the um, so not long after that, uh, so we were there for both both things. I think this this strike from Syria happened on like the eighth or the ninth, and then the uh, the protests. The forty thousand person protest in the Gaza Strip, where several people were killed. Um, that was on the fourteenth, I think. So yeah, we were there for both of those. But again, that's Gaza is pretty far away from where we were uh, uh, when they were when they when the strike happened. The Golan Heights. We were in a hotel uh, nearby, so we could sort of hear what was happening. Um, but the Gaza Strip was fairly far away, um, and so we just. Like everybody else, who's reading news reports about it, and uh, of course in, in Israel, like, I don't know if it's any different than the U.S., but Israel's ordinary Israelis have a much different attitude than what you see in uh, uh, commonly in the West about what's going on over there. Yeah. So they're not everybody, but many people seem to convey the the notion that. Um, there's a certain degree of something like theater which is being played out there. So, uh, and that the Palestinians are actually using the protest, staging the protest as a way of covering an attempt to breach the border with terrorists. And so they had, and they actually had, uh, they were showing like one of the newspaper articles showing news feeds from Facebook of Hamas telling young people in Gaza to bring knives, uh, uh, guns, explosives, anything they could to the border for the protest. And because when the plan was to break down the fence and flood them with so many people uh, and that the IDF couldn't, couldn't stop them and then you know, commit acts of terror. Well, of course, it didn't work out. And then uh, the following day, after the reports of all the deaths and, and injuries, the, uh, the media had a fair number of stories about uh, showing like this, the bodies of people who were killed covered with like a white cloth and then a video showing those same people like moving underneath the white cloth. So like, okay, there's 
they're staging at least part of what happened. Uh, but, but for sure, uh, several Hamas terrorists were killed. And uh, as far as the injuries go, it's, it's, it's really hard to tell. So, and so the Israelis are like, yeah, this is, this is what they always do. And then it's like, it's always like this. There's, there's, there is some threat, there is some degree of, of struggle happening. There is some military kind of conflict, but it's, it, it's not what it's being portrayed as. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're much more kind of blasé about it. Because like, uh, yeah. from the U.S. news, it's like all you know. Yeah, you know, the Israelis Israeli are like, you know, randomly slaughtering ran, uh, completely unarmed people. Mm-hmm. I couldn't offer this, but I'm going to keep it here because it's got blue stilted in it. It's very snowy. Oh, okay. Are you going to be here for a while? Two days. Oh, fabulous. Okay, okay I'll make sure that you get your cool back. So I do it. So it was uh, um, quite a cultural experience to be over there and see all this stuff. And I'm glad to be back. It's kind of quieter here. Yeah. yeah. This is far from the war zone. <laughs> yeah, pretty far from the war zone. Hmm. Well, everything is so connected nowadays. Uh, whatever happens, you're going to hear about it. You almost anywhere where it does happen. Someone, someone will tweet about it. Uh-huh. Yes, please, Maureen, help yourself with the trailer. So we're having tea together. I'm willing to entertain any, any topic of discussion. <laughs> I guess because I think there were a couple. Anyway, you, whichever way you want to tell the story, I'm, no, I'm not sure. That I, I'm not actually sure that I've got your question yet. Um, sorry, I was jumping ahead there. Say it how you say it. Uh, that your history was. You, any I can't remember it exactly, but you ordained. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe in the Burmese tradition. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then, so. Um, uh, it kind of goes back to how I ended up becoming a monk, is that I, I started off um, just an ordinary suffering guy in Silicon Valley, uh, working in high tech. And my, uh, so my background, I had an electronic engineering um, background, but I, I didn't really use it very much. I ended up going back to school and getting an MBA, and I did like, more like tech management. Uh, for a company called KLA Tencore. 
a great company, really nice people, really good management, great products, interesting problems to solve. But and um, I was having as, as good a career as one might expect. But uh, it wasn't making me happy. I was working really hard, and and every time they got a raise or a promotion, it just meant more responsibility. And, uh, the sense of meaning or accomplishment just wasn't happening for me. So um, that sense of uh, unsatisfactoriness, which later I came to identify as with the word dukkha, right, uh, was permeating my life. So I started. Um, I eventually ended, I started looking for like some way to do do something about that, other than just. You know, work, work more, get a different job, or move, or all the other things that people try to do to escape dukkha. And uh, I ended up eventually uh, stumbling across the Dhamma in the form of the Four Noble Truths. And that happened in Japan. So I was in a hotel room in Japan and uh, on a business trip. And it was just, you know, filled with restlessness and this sense of meaninglessness of my life. And I was looking for something to distract me, and I found this little book in the commode next to the bed, um, The Sayings of the Buddha in English and Japanese. And I just opened it up at random, and pretty soon I came across the three other truths, and it just really really resonated. Just right there I knew, oh, this this is what I've been looking for. I'm going to have to follow this one up. So I started, uh, first I started sitting with the Zen people because it was, you know, I touched, I came in, came into it in Japan, so I figured, you know, Zen, they must know. But the Zen tradition, the way it was being presented at the time in the San Francisco Bay Area, it was pretty, I think the Four Noble Truths was not a prominent part of the teaching there. Uh, lots of, it was more kind of folklore-ish. And then the zazen, just like sitting without any explanation about what you're doing and why you're doing it or what you're trying to do. Just don't do anything. This is the 90s? Mm, yes. yes. So, uh, so I, I said, okay, this, I know it's related to Buddhism somehow, but it's not what I was interested in, the Four Noble Truths. So I started looking around and hunting around and Eventually, I came across a lay sitting group in uh, that part of the world, being run by a fellow named Gil Fronsdale, who was a former Zen priest. So I made a good transition, and he introduced me to the Theravada. I started doing retreats, and the more retreats I did, the more interested I became, the less compelling the rest of my world was. Lay life is becoming less and less exciting, and you know, seeing where the Dhamma was going to take me became more and more compelling. And uh, eventually, I quit my job. Uh, what I did is I took a one-year sabbatical, and it's just I never, I never came back. So um, I ended up being inspired by a traveling nun named Sister Susila. And yeah, yeah. is this ringing a bell? And, She's my teacher. Okay, there you go. So sister, sister. I was coming with her when you were. Yeah. Was she in? The, was it a talk that she gave at? Um, Spirit Walk. 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a connection between. 2000 and. It was like 2003 three. or something. Yeah. Wow. <coughs> small world, huh? <laughs> the Dhamma world's a pretty small world. I've noticed that over and over again. So, um, so at that at that talk, she did one in Spirit Rock, and then she did one in in Berkeley, I think. It was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, were you there for that? Yeah, I were. Yeah. So, um, a fellow named Robert Cusick. Cusick. <laughs> Robert knows everybody. Yeah, he he. That's when he met her. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Uh, and did did Robert Cusick try to get you involved in his? Um, what is he doing right now? He's teaching for Stanford, uh, a course called Compassionate Caregiving. No, because mm -hmm. so he met her first then, mm -hmm. and uh, he gave her a ride home mm -hmm. because. And I was scrunched in his backseat of his two-seater car, <laughs> and uh, that's when he uh -huh. got introduced to the public tradition, and then he became a public site, a disciple, and ordained with him. So right. I haven't really talked to him since 2005, uh -huh. when he was first, he organized Saida's retreat, and mm -hmm. then after that he became a monk. I did you go to the, oh, did you get involved at all with that Green Gulch retreat that... That I was there for, for the retreat? Actually, so was Tilika. You were there at the Green Gulch retreat? With Pog Saida. in California yeah, in two months, 2000 and what was it? For the first month we were there. Wow. Uh, I was visiting. I was vis Robert was running it. Yeah. I couldn't attend for, for some personal reason. I can't remember why now, but I couldn't attend. But I, I knew, knew Pog was there and I really wanted to. I, I wanted to participate. I wanted to be there, but I couldn't. But I could like come on a weekend and like just kind of uh, very quietly, like visit Robert and sort of see what's going on. Were you a monk then? No, I was still a lay person. Yeah. So, so yes, Tilika, we've 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 come close to each other before <laughs> <laughs> along the Dhamma Trail. The Dhamma world's a small, a relatively small subset of the world. We keep running across each other. So when 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 Robert became decided to follow up with Sister Susila's inspiration and go become a monk. Um, he and I were talking about that, and uh, so we hatched the plan where he was going to go over there first. I was going to wrap up some things and go over there second. I ended up coming, showing up about uh, three weeks after he arrived, and they had already ordained him as a monk. And I know I thought we were just going to go there as lay people. And so sure enough, Pogside says to me, "You know, since you're going to be here for a while, it'd be easier for us to take care of you if you would just ordain." So I said, "Well." Oh. You know, it's temporary. He says, it's okay, maybe you'll change your mind. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I got ordained as a novice there. With uh, So Robert and I were in Brown together. Got a lovely picture of him and me and Paul Excited on the steps of his kuti. Uh, and that lasted, only lasted two months, and then I had to come back. Robert hung in there for a year and went back twice. It almost killed him. <laughs> like it was really hard on his body. But anyway, so he's better now. Uh, so once I, you know, once I had that experience with Pollock or, or in the robes over there, um, you know, it just like changed my view of my life. I realized that I could become a monk. Before it just seemed too far away. You know, it's a bridge too far. Um, so when I came back after that, I had some kind of determination that I'm, I, I want to do this. And I took a go at uh, Ajahn Tanisro's place down near San Diego. And he 
told me I was too old. <laughs> I was 45 at the time. It's a young man gay. You shouldn't ordain if you're, if you're that old. And so it was clear that he didn't want to ordain me. He said he, he felt it was his duty to do so if I insisted, but he didn't think it was a good idea. So I wasn't going to impose myself on him. Uh, so I, I gave that up and I messed around with some other stuff for a few several years, I, I set up a retreat center in northern Washington state uh, with a friend. And uh, my idea was I set up a retreat center and become sort of like a secular uh, monk. You know, I just spend my time there doing retreat and go off and make money for a couple of months and come back. That was a good dream, but it wasn't going to work because I didn't have enough spiritual friends and spiritual companions to, to make it stick. Uh, so, right around the end of my 40s, Robert convinced me to go back to Abayagiri. I'd been there before, but I hadn't met the, the senior monks. They were both traveling at the time. So, Ajahn Amaro was one of them, and Ajahn Pasadena. I got to meet them both in probably, this is probably 2009, yeah, 2008. And I asked them if I could, if I could ordain. And they said, well, you're kind of old. <laughs> but they didn't say, you're too old. They said, well, come on, you know, maybe come back and spend more time with us and we'll, we'll, we'll experience you with that in mind, the possibility that you might or may. Um, and so I said, well, I, you know, I'd like to try out for the Anagarka training. And said, oh, there's, there's a bunch of guys ahead of you in, in line in the queue. Uh, so we'll let you know when there's an opening. I decided then to go back, go go back to Asia and spend some time in Thailand to see what what I was getting myself into, the, the, the Ajahn Chah tradition, because I'd been you know hanging around the Bhagiri, I'm hearing all these stories about Ajahn Chah and the forest tradition and Wapapong um, and Wapananachat and um, all these uh, crazy Thai things that you hear about. And so I decided to get my, have my own experience. I wanted to know what they were talking about. So I went over to, to uh, Thailand. I was in Wapapong for a few months. And they had the World Habits meeting there. And this is during the time, shortly after Ajahn Brahm had gotten like, excommunicated because of the bhikkhuni thing, uh, ordaining bhikkhunis with uh, authorization from the rest of the Sangha. And uh, so the World Habits meeting was being held in at uh, Wat Pananachat. And so I got to meet a whole bunch of the senior monks there, and uh, Ajahn Pasano showed up there too, so you know, I was starting to feel, okay, this, I'm seeing a lot of like convergences of my life happening. So this looks like a pretty good deal. I figured I could either ordain at, at Wat Pananachat. He told me, oh yeah, you know, we'll ordain you because you're male and you're free of debt. And you, I met the Vinaya requirements. So in Asia, though, ordaining as long as you're like kind of still alive, you know. I met people at uh, at uh, Paul Huck's place in Myanmar in Burma uh, that were literally just had raised a family and worked a long time. It was time to retire and just retire in the monastery. You ordain, and your kids come and visit you, and you know, you get taken care of. So there was no problem ordaining in Asia. But I really wanted to ordain in in the U.S. so that I could be close to my parents. Um, uh, so when I got back, 
the opportunity appeared, they accepted me as an Anagarika, and, and, uh, and kind of stuck with it, and made it through the seminary year, and in your third year as a monk, in this tradition, you're supposed to go abroad and go somewhere else. Since I'd already been to Wat Lapong, I asked if I could go here to Canada because I'd already met Ajahn Viridamo, uh, we would visit Abayagiri. And uh, so that worked out. So I ended up coming here. Is that 2010 when Ajahn Sumedho was here? Uh, 2012. Or 2014 when Ajahn Sumedho came and did the uh, Gratitude to Parents Day uh, that year. So I, I, I arrived here just like at the beginning of the end of the spring, beginning of the summer. And uh, I just haven't gotten around to leaving yet. So I keep hanging around and they keep letting me stay. So we'll see how long that lasts. Tilika is trying to make it like semi-permanent by <laughs> sponsoring me for a, a, a residence visa. So you don't have to fill out the paperwork all the time for me get another religious worker's or religious visa. So I, mean, I, have, I currently have a religious worker's permit, which is like the step, step that leads to being able to have a, re- a residence visa. Uh, so, and so, yeah, so far so good. Things are working out. Yeah. So how did you end up in Michigan? Going all the way from Robert Cusick's back seat to this car. Oh, I grew up in Michigan. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So. Were you just like visiting California at the time when um, Sister so, Cecile was there? No. Uh, I mean, I feel like I'm not blazing, but um, <laughs> actually, I first the first monk I met was Ajanagra when when Abayagiri first opened in 1996, and. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't live in Michigan, and I actually didn't know Richard or anybody. I didn't. I just started being Buddhist, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I met him and um, wanted to be a nun. So uh, after like four months at Abayagiri, I was went to Amravati. Mm. I was in Amravati for a couple of years. Didn't work out karmically. Mm. Uh-huh. I wasn't uh, able to sustain that. But anyway. Um, I met Sayla Deepankara there mm-hmm. in 99, mm-hmm. and so I came back to the U.S. in 99, and the next year we brought her to the U.S. in 2000, and so I set up um, with via different people, Temple Smith, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I remember Temple. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He um, arranged for her to teach at IMS, just to the teachers, so, mm-hmm. and then... Uh, so, um, and then we went to the West Coast, and so she met Joseph Goldstein and, you know, kind of introduced them to the POC system kind of thing, and mm-hmm. Joseph was really interested. And then we went to California, and she taught at Spirit Rock, the teachers again, and they were, they found it interesting. That probably like kind of paved the way for Sister Cecilia to come later, right? Because they knew so about So then I went back the... with her to Burma, uh-huh. and then to Singapore, and that's where I met Sister Cecilia. And I'd always been interest, interested in Abhidhamma prior to that, so say Lady Pankara knew that, so she had me talk to Sister Susila, and then mm-hmm. I invited Sister Susila to come in 2002, mm-hmm. and Tilika hosted her here, and actually Tilika hosted Say Lady Pankara for her, the first retreat in 2000 for eight days, 
in her home. Wow. So it was the first Pauk teacher in the West, or in the in North America, mm -hmm. did the first Pauk retreat at Tilika's house. Wow. So did you meet Lady Pankara? I never met her, no. Uh, you probably knew her. I, I knew of her, of course, right, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Sister Cecilia talked about her a fair bit. So then Sister Cecilia came in 2002, mm -hmm. And while she was here, and actually in Noma, I think you guys organized a retreat at Arlo Buddha Society because she was teaching Abhidhamma, mm -hmm. like introduction to Abhidhamma. And so, and then Tilika organized a 10 day Abhidhamma retreat in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And from that, um, all the talks she gave, which she was giving like two or three talks a day, mm -hmm. and basically finished the whole Abhidhamma. Even, I think she even got to Patana, which, you know, it's, not easy to cover all that in 10 days yeah yeah mm -hmm. and um so then i started transcribing those groups so then that transcription that's and then she started working on that as a basis for her book that became the unraveling and mm -hmm. so then she came back the next year no Sailor de Pankar came in 2003 and um sister they i think it was 2005 no when would you have met it was 2002 when you heard her speak in Canada or California. Could be, yeah, because I know it was like in the early 2000s. But, yeah. yeah. So that yeah. was that tour. It was kind of the mm -hmm. Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma tour. tour. She didn't really talk about about Abhidhamma very much at the, during the uh, presentations that she made at Spirit Rock and um, Berkeley. She talked mostly about the Pollock system of jhana, jhana practice. But of course, you know, there's Abhidhamma in it, but. Yeah. It wasn't like Abhidhamma-centric. At least it didn't seem so at the time. Uh, yeah, that's very interesting how these... She's teaching very differently now, actually. Yeah? Yeah, she doesn't teach the straight power system anymore. She, she does more Chittanyapasana. Chittanyapasana. Yeah, uh -huh. so I almost feel like in some ways um, it'd be more... A lot of what she teaches is... It would be very familiar to the Thai forest tradition. In some ways, like the Chittanyapasana, uh -huh. um, you know, mindfulness of mind states, mental states. Yeah, and I mean, that's what Ajahn Chah is always talking about that. Yeah. Right? It's like, um, watch what your mind is doing. You can almost summarize the Thai forest teaching, my own, my own kind of internal summary is like, go back to your kuti and watch your mind. Right? Put forth effort and watch your mind. Keep an eye on it. And uh, make the mind calm, and then spend time watching the mind. That's all you got to do. <laughs> Just do that until you until you see what how the mind creates problems, and then stop doing that thing that you do. Uh, sounds easy, but of course it's not so easy. But really, that's where the, that's where the game that's where the game happens. Right? Everything else is all the practices are ultimately preparation for for seeing what the mind does. Very very clearly. That's very cool. It's a little small world, huh? <laughs> Amazing. Venerable yeah. sir, we are trying to get Sister Susila here. Oh yeah? One more time? Get her back again? She's in Malaysia now, isn't she? Yes. Mm -hmm. But uh, we invited her mm -hmm. and we are hoping she will make it. You're going to bring her for a retreat or something? Or? No, whether we could keep up with You want to keep her here? Oh, <laughs> I don't know if the Malaysians will like that. But that would be very cool. Where would you... Um, in Toronto. 
Where would you put her? Uh, in Toronto. In Toronto. Is there the, a there's a group of uh, meditators, uh, the Indonesians, Malaysians, mm -hmm. from that part of the world. I see. Who who would probably uh, look after her, set up a little a little a living place for her? And they could they could get a place for her. That would be great. And if we could have us another thing which we lack. Here is, we don't have a retreat center, proper retreat center. Yeah, venues are a big problem in Canada. I don't know why that is, but it seems like trying to get a place <coughs> to teach uh, is quite difficult for, this, for the sitting groups around. And of course, this monastery is not really set up to do retreats per se. We've tried to do it a couple of times, but it's, we haven't really, can't really do a proper residential retreat because of the, the smallness of our space. Uh, but for sure, I think you know, there's tremendous interest in, in having that. Uh, so, yeah, we sh somebody somebody ought to do something about it. <laughs> Just not me. <laughs> but for sure, having uh, Sister Cecilia here would be a, a great addition to the to the whole Dhamma scene in we Canada. We would better take care of her. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, uh, yeah. She, I'm sure she's getting on in years. I don't know how old she is. She's mm. 55. She's not that old. 55. Yeah. For, like, yeah. 50. Yeah. So she's pretty fit. Pretty fit. Yeah. She seemed pretty zippy when I met her. And she's pretty zippy, yeah. so. <laughs> okay. yeah. She stayed at my house for seven weeks uh, last year. and um, Wore you out? <laughs> What's that? Did she wear you out? Well, she did. <laughs> she found this thing on YouTube. Um, this like, because I had weights in my house, so mm -hmm. she just decided she'd never done it before, really. Mm -hmm. So she used these handmaids, and she found this YouTube. This couple that would do these YouTube exercises and stuff. So she was like doing. Mm. This, <laughs> she was like weight training for that seven weeks. Richard would come and like. <laughs> Did she get stronger? I start like you know. Well, I do. She did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so she keeps fit. Yeah, Sister C was quite a quite a powerhouse. <laughs> I know that about it. She was in Canada last year. Oh, oh, really? What was she? Was she teaching or something? I think she is. She yeah. was teaching. She I was not aware. Hmm. But I saw her. Okay, you saw her. Yes. Uh -huh. Oh, good. I'm glad that she's make, uh, staying in contact with the with the scene here. Does she? She must have friends then in Toronto, the the Indonesians and the Malaysians. Okay. Uh, so, Tilika, are you trying to help with the visa for her? Yes. Uh -huh. The only thing I'm thinking is, uh, besides the benefit to us uh -huh. having her, is. Well, yeah, if she's got health problems, this would be a good place to help her look after it. Hmm. Now, did, doesn't she have a, an actual nunnery or something, or a retreat center already yes, in Malaysia? Yes, she has one hermitage there. Well, I could see maybe that there might be some, some strain about leaving that behind. Uh, 
She's well, usually gone for like six months. So she probably there. just cycle out of there and maybe go back and visit from time to time. Yeah, okay. She spends like two to three months a year in mainland China. Because mm-hmm. actually there's like, 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 I guess, huge interest there that's... And because she's Chinese-speaking, yeah. so mm-hmm. it's... Um, I, I think I just think the Dhamma is really taking off there. Yeah, well, there's going to be a lot of pull. I, I, I've heard that from other people that uh, you know, China has a tremendous hunger for Dhamma teachers because it was taken away from them for a long time. And it's interesting. I find mainland Chinese, like mm-hmm. compared to Taiwanese Chinese, mm-hmm. um, mainland Chinese are more like Americans in the way they approach Buddhism because they have no. No cultural. No prior history, yeah. no cultural. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't grow up with it. So mm-hmm. um, I feel like they approach it very um, almost like Americans, like kind of starting with the meditation aspect mm-hmm. first, but but they're more prone to go they're more faith oriented. Right. Eventually, so, so, so the faith will come up and then they'll become very yeah. yeah. Yeah, whereas Americans might never quite get there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the and they're she said they're so sharp-minded that mm-hmm. teaching there is really like like they get they're very quick-minded. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. Suits her. Quick-minded teacher, quick-minded students. Everybody's <laughs> happy. I haven't heard anything about Paul Hawking in, in quite some time. He had a stroke. Oh, yeah? I think two years ago, maybe. Okay. Hmm. So his, I think he's still teaching, but his health, he doesn't travel and teach that much anymore. Is he, is he staying in Sri Lanka now, or is he back in... No, uh-huh. um, he stayed in Sri Lanka, I think, when um, Venable Nauyena, this one is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. He was staying there for a, n- a number of years, I think, wasn't he? With some of his disciples, and then I know he taught like a great big retreat in back in Burma, and I know he also did a vasa in California. Yeah. Um, and Robert was his uh, main talk. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I haven't heard much lately about where he is or. I think maybe sometimes he'll go like Indonesia mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. in Asia, but he hasn't been back to the West in a long time. And I think his health is yeah, he's, he's pretty, he's he's you know kind of uh, having su- suffering with health stuff for quite some time, and, and he's burns the candle at both ends. And, yeah. yeah, he's diabetic. He's diabetic. Yeah. So that's a pity. Though. That's. That's how that's how it goes. Certainly, he's done a lot. Uh, pushed really hard to make sure that his package, his teaching style, got uh, made it across to the west. So that's, that's really good. Made it out of Burma. Not sure how it's trickled down oh. the Leslie scene, but well, I think that there's a like there's there's this subspecialties in the Dhamma. Some people, you know, don't have much faith but have really sharp minds, which can pick up the Abhidhamma very quickly and they can get make great progress with that. 
Some people don't really can't the Abhidhamma just doesn't go in at all, um, but they have you know a strong faith, and so they can penetrate the Dhamma with that faith. So, not every teacher is suitable for every student. Uh, they say only the Buddha could do that. So, you know, Pollock's style, he has a couple of lay teachers, Tina and Stephen, yeah, yeah, Rasmussen, I think. Um, and they've got a following, so there's something happening there. But I don't think we're going to see any Pollock monasteries in the West. That's, that's like a Yes. <coughs> On the 29th and 30th of June, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know whether you know this monk, Venerable Mangala. Venerable Mangala. 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 He studied mm-hmm. in the States. He's Malaysian. He'll be in Toronto for two days. Oh, nice. If you happen to be in Tisarana, I'll try and see whether we could bring him to Tisarana. Well, for sure, um, at the Sarna, that particular time, for I'll be here. I don't know whether uh, Lumpur Viradama will be here or not. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think he will be. Yeah, I think he's going to be off teaching. But he's welcome to to visit for sure. Yeah. If if you, if he, if he wants to come, and then we'd be happy to see I'm him. Sure yeah. Yeah. He led a retreat. In the recent past, when I was sick, but now he's coming for two days. Two days. So uh-huh. I hope to attend. Yes. Well. Um, hmm. And is he? Uh, is he gonna? Is he, he's coming for two days to teach for two days. Yes. And is and it, the Toronto Mahavihara. Okay. All right. So you're <coughs> you're going to try to attend that teaching. Yes, I will. Um, going to attend some. Yes. All right. Um, I hope. Well, that's, that's right. We just uh, we we always we make plans, but we don't get too attached to them. Um, so you're thinking that maybe after he's done with that teaching, he would possibly come to Tisarna for a visit. No, I was wondering. Maybe I'll have to speak to him. Okay. Okay. Yes. If if it could be arranged, we um, we'd love to have a visit. Um, it was the 29th and the 30th of June. Okay. Yeah, I'll just double check the calendar, but please, yeah, send me an email if uh, if anything comes of that. I think yesterday Lumpovi said he's he'll be gone from the fourth of June until mm-hmm. July fifth. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he'll be off. To, he's going to be in BC, I think, teaching that whole time. So yeah, that's like, so. I'll be the. Uh, Senior monk, or the guy, I won't actually be the senior monk. We'll have Ajahn Pavaro be here. Will he? I'm not sure when he gets here. So Ajahn Pavaro is coming from Thailand. Uh, but there'll be, there'll be some monks here for sure. And I will be one of them. If You know, so there'll be somebody here. <laughs> uh, and yeah, if, if uh, Venerable Mangala wanted to come, we'd be happy to see him. Yes. Yeah. He teaches Vendorvasa non-stop, apparently. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, <coughs> if, if he comes here and he's teaching, then maybe we'll learn something. He so. won't stop. If it's a talk, uh-huh. there's no talk for one hour. Uh-huh. It just goes and goes and goes. Huh? Yes. 
Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. Maybe we'll get him to do a Dhamma he talk. He came with some other monks, mm-hmm. but those monks taught in Chinese. Mm-hmm. Only Venerable Mangala taught in English. I see. Well, that's... I tried to get in, I couldn't because it was full. It was just too late. Too late. You can't, you can't do everything. Yeah. So are you signed up for the one that's coming in yes, June? Sir, All right. So at least you have the opportunity. Yeah, may it work out for you. Is it June 20th? 29th and 30th. I think June 30th is the Abhayagiri Temple opening, right? So isn't Ajahn Viridhamma going to be there? He's probably going to fly. Yeah, I know he's going to be on the West Coast doing yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, so he'll do that. And then uh, it'll be a while before he gets back. Are you going to that teaching in, in uh, Toronto? No, I'll be living in Prunedale, California by that time. Okay, that'll make it inconvenient so to go to Toronto. <laughs> What's in Prunedale? A new job. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> I had a job in California once. So it was nice while last. <laughs> we'll see. Vegetable Circle was Arrow River. Ooh, Arrow River. Uh, way back. That was last winter. It was last winter. It was, it, it, was, it was satisfying. Like, because Arrow River, um, the temperatures dropped down to minus 40. You know, yes. It got really cold. Um, I finally felt like, oh, I've really had a proper Canadian winter. Yeah. The winters here are kind of like a little too mild, you know, they don't, they don't really get cold enough, long enough for me to feel like <coughs> really getting deep into winter. But there I, I definitely had that feeling. Yeah. And last, actually last winter here was colder. It started off, uh, what was it, like December, January? We got some temperatures down to minus 30. That was pretty satisfying. That was pretty good. Uh, and then also at Arrow River, uh, Ajahn Punadamo, of course, he's, he's a much different character. And the, the situation there is much different with the people from Thunder Bay. Uh, so it was a good experience to kind of operate in that environment. And uh, it gave me an opportunity to, to do, could give Ajahn Punadamo a fair bit of help with his his infrastructure. I put, you know, installed lights and I rebalanced his solar system and I counseled their lay, the lay people there and gave some Dhamma talks. So it was really fun to kind of go there and and help him out with all the stuff that needs to be done. Because, uh, you know, there's, there's way more than really he can do. So a lot of it's just sort of like, like laying there waiting for someone to come <laughs> along and do it. Uh, so that, was, that was quite a, a good experience. But yeah, much different. So I, I was happy to come back here and have a shower again. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the sauna thing is. Yeah. Every time I'd sit in the sauna, I like do, like yeah, do this thing where you splash hot, like, the hot water and you have the sauna and uh, you're trying to like uh, wash your body, shave, and uh, your feet are freezing because the floor is like you know. Uh, there's ice forming in the floor, and it's about, you know, it's like 55 at the at the level of your ears. You know, so there's this, 
I don't know, 50 degree range between the, the sauna floor and the sauna ceiling. And uh, uh, so it's a, it's a, the fact that it's uncomfortable is one thing, but the, the, what's, what's more uh, difficult about it is I can't actually see. It's, not, it's dark in the sauna. The only light's coming through this little kind of uh, this small window. <laughs> You're trying to shave. And, uh, it's just a little too primitive for, for, for comfort, especially in the really cold days. But it wasn't so bad. I just wouldn't want to do a steady diet. Happy to come back for showers. But that reminds me, I'm going to try to see if I can get a sauna here for uh, Lumpur V. Uh, his joints have been giving him trouble you know, lately. And uh, so, who was it? Tina had the idea that we should look into maybe acquiring a sauna for him. Someone offered us an electric sauna. But um, we decided we can't really, we don't really have a place to put it. It needs to be installed indoors and we haven't got like a proper, look. if we'd known it was coming before we built the Bikavihara, Vihara, we might have been able to set it up to accommodate it. But there's no place for us to shoehorn it in. So uh, I'm looking, I say I'm doing it, I'm not really doing it. I'm just like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the research on it. Uh, hopefully uh, the board of directors or somebody will approve it. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, to buy a sauna for for one for me. Um, I saw in town. There's a a place that Tina took me to, a pool and spa place, and the proprietor there's you know been there for a long time, and he's got a a sauna that looks like a wine barrel laid on its side. You know, it's like a like a wine cask. You know. And it's got a little door in it, and kind of two seats running down the sides, and a heater in the back. You can get either electric or wood-fired heater. I would get I would get a wood-fired heater, um, and you feed it from the outside, so you don't have to bring wood through the interior of the sauna. And um, and it wasn't it wasn't terribly expensive, and it would be easy to install because it, it only requires a couple of V blocks, on maybe a, a gravel pad. To support it, so we'll see. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get something like that for him. In some places they heat with stones. How do you do that? I've seen in some places they heat with the stones. Oh, um, yeah, I'm not really sure. In this, in this case, you just build a fire inside of it, and the, the thing is well made enough and well insulated enough that the entire interior heats up. And because it's all it's all wood. And there's no uh, metal fasteners involved. Um, there's no like hot spots. You're not going to burn your skin, even though the interior will get quite warm. That's always a problem with uh, with a sa- with a sauna. You can't you can't have like a metal doorknobs or you can't have nail heads uh, or anything like that because it's it creates a, a hazard burn hazard because uh, the interior of the sauna can get. <laughs> really, uh, to the point where metal surfaces could be, to the point where they'd actually burn you. Uh, but yeah, using it for bathing though—that's that's, that's kind of rough. <laughs> but, yeah, just going in there and having a place to get to get hot—that would be good.
Well, it's 6.15. Have we had enough? Yeah? Okay. Well, thanks for all the nice little things. Thank you for the time. It's lovely talking to you all. Until our next meeting, which... I don't know what's, what's going to happen. Oh. Are we having puja? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just things cleaned up here. <laughs> mosquitoes out there. Yeah. They can smell us in here. <laughs> okay. Okay.